Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. If you've been following the 2016 presidential election, it should come as no surprise that income inequality has become a, if not the, leading issue in the race. The increased attention to this disparity and the threat it poses to the middle class is due, at least in part, to the media. There are several examples of the kind of light that journalists have shown on this issue in the past few years, but probably the best one is a 2014 New York Times opinion series called The Great Divide, which was entirely devoted to discussing income inequality. The series was moderated by Columbia professor and Nobel laureate Joseph Stieglitz, and eventually became the basis for his book of the same name in 2015. In the midst of this growing national conversation, the Columbia School of International and Public Affairs, or SIPA, held a panel discussion about the discourse around income inequality during the 2016 presidential election season, with a special focus on the media. In addition to Joseph Stieglitz, the panel also included New York Times economics reporter Patricia Cohen and New York Review of Books contributor Michael Massing. Anya Schifrin from Columbia SIPA served as the evening's moderator. We're going to play you an excerpt from that discussion, starting with Joseph Stieglitz. He was asked to elaborate on how the media has helped put inequality in the public eye. I think the series, uh, The Great Divide, uh, in the New York Times uh, did help a lot in highlighting the issue. Uh, it, it was a series that, that went on uh, for a couple years where, that I helped curate that not only talked about the economic inequality, the disparities uh, between the rich and the poor in income and wealth, but also talked about the very many different other dimensions, environmental inequality and injustice, education, uh, access to education, uh, and access to justice. So by constantly, you know, you know, two, three, four times a week writing about it, I think people sort of got the idea that maybe there was some inequality in the United States and, and in, in, in other countries. And I, I think that was uh, at least part uh, of, of the reason that the message got across. Uh, I think one of the reasons that the topic has resonated so much, though, is the sheer fact that inequality has grown so large. So that the media may have helped crystallize what people were feeling, but you know there's a sort of a natural American optimism, and people feeling uh, they should be doing well, and yet in their paycheck, it wasn't showing so well. And so I, I don't know if you, how many of you know the kind of data, but the median income in the United States now is lower than it was about a quarter century ago. In median income of a full-time male worker is lower than it was 40 years ago. And at the bottom, real wages are lower than they were 60 years ago. So these are just astounding numbers for a country that claims to be uh, having prog economic progress. And it's a testimony to the fact that, that how much of it's gone to a relatively few people. So I think the, the, the media did play a role, but I think reality also helped play a role. I think some of our political leaders have done a good job. I think Elizabeth Warren has you know, been very forceful in, in articulating what has been going on in terms of inequality and he makes some very powerful speeches about for instance uh, that since roughly 1980 let me just pick out a date um, or 81 uh, January 20th 81 that about nine that the bottom 90 percent have had their income stagnate so those are all numbers that you know again that that help 
crystallized, like something peculiar has gone, been going on in our country. And how's that feeding into the elections? Is that behind the support for Trump and Sanders? Is it yes, I think it's the common element that's feeding into both parties. I think there are two elements that are feeding in. That's one of the elements that is really uh, very powerful, that people are strained, uh, feeling a strain. And let me say, say, it's not just inequality. I think even more, or as much at least, is that people are finding it increasingly difficult to have what is called a middle-class lifestyle, send their kids to college, have a secure retirement, own a home, all those things that people in the 1950s and 60s thought of as a prerequisite of a middle-class life. Those are becoming out of reach or seemingly out of reach. The other element I think that's very important is the set, set of injustice. They're feeling life is very hard, especially since the onset of the Great Recession, and yet the people who caused the Great Recession, the bankers, walked off with bonuses of, billion, of millions and millions of dollars, and not a single, you know, not, basically almost no banker was held accountable, went to prison, and in the much more minor wrinkle that power, none of you probably remember the SNL crisis, a thousand bankers went to prison. So something else has happened to our society, and that is the system of accountability and fairness has disappeared. We threw people out of their home in our so-called system of justice who owed no money. The banks just said they did, and they lied, committed perjury by the thousands, and then they paid some fines, but those fines were not paid by the bankers, they were paid by the shareholders. So there is, I think, a grave sense, and there ought to be a grave sense of something is unjust about the way our society is functioning. So I think those two, inequality, the difficulty of maintaining a, 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 the basic middle-class lifestyle that everybody believes is part of the American dream, lack of opportunity, and a real sense, deserving sense of the lack of justice of our system. A couple of points that I just uh, would pick up on what Joe said, which I was thinking about. And I, I, I would just add two things, um, which is one, I think the problem that exists today is nothing like it was in 1982. And if anything, and I, I think the 1% has been a very useful framing device, but I really think it's more a question now of the 0.01% or the 0.001% in terms of that concentration of wealth. And you can see by the This is New York Times reporter Patricia Cohen. Um, and the other point is that I, just to pick up and amplify on what Joe said about this hollowing out of the middle class, because honestly, I think that people would care less about inequality, although the fairness issue I do think is important, if they felt they were doing okay themselves. But um, I think that's the problem, which is this stagnation of median incomes and the fact that people are working and they haven't seen any raises. And you know, we're seeing in the economy this kind of barbell effect where there is this concentration of highly skilled jobs at one end, concentration of low-skilled jobs at another, but the middle is really, um, is really being increasingly attenuated and all kinds of reasons for that. We, we know globalization or the gig economy, the, you know, lessening bargaining power of labor um, and, and so on. And um, I think it's that uh, one of the economists, he was actually a conservative economist that I interviewed for a story, talked about the disgruntled employed. And I thought that actually was a great phrase because we tend to think of people who are unemployed, you know, and looking at the employment the unemployment statistics as a kind of real barometer of how people are doing and how the economy is doing. But in fact, people are working, but they're really not seeing the fruits of that. And I think that is what is is really fueling, in terms of the election, this the outsider phenomenon, whether it's Donald, the anger, Donald Trump or, or Bernie Sanders. 
Michael, do you think that the media was remiss? Should they have seen Trump coming? I think that that question, Anya, is part of a broader phenomenon. That's New York Review of Books contributor Michael Massing. Trump, yes, it's sort of like um, the white working class. How come they're gravitating to Trump? But there are a whole series of questions. You know, why is Sanders, why are young women for him? And leaving aside what Gloria Steinem said, uh, it's it's still an important question. There was... um, uh, when Trump made those comments about Bush and the war, and so, you know, South Carolina, a big military state, people were saying, like, well, is he going to get away with this? And it, I read an article saying, well, people in the military, in multiple deployments, have so distressed families that they sort of, you know, were willing to support that. Um, and then there was also Trump making his reference to um, two Corinthians, and everybody said, my goodness, where are the evangelicals? It's second Corinthians. I mean, but they didn't care, you know. So, so there, there are a whole series of these things. And um, I think that um, the press has been constantly having to play catch-up on this. Um, we're all aware of sort of the, I mean, Joe laid out very well a phenomenon that, that we're sort of aware of. And, and, but journalists, in terms of the electorate, have constantly been behind. And the reason, I think, is because who do journalists generally rely on for their information about the election? academics, their think tanks, their local journalists in these states, the pundits, uh, and then, of course, the pollsters. Um, I thought if I were to uh, give a label, uh, title for my comments, it would be polls, polls, and populism. And the polls and the polls, meaning the politicians, have been, they so dominate the coverage. I mean, we've had this Nate Silverization, I think, of <laughs> coverage, you know, where the polls, I mean, I've clipped these stories, and I, I can't tell you you know, this exit poll and this poll from, from Gallup and, and CNN's poll. And, they, and, and you have people that do nothing but pour over these and, and try to handicap these races. Um, and I, just to read a couple things, here was, a, was on the New Yorker website, Benjamin Wallace Wells. The Clintons have lost the working class. And he has a sentence that I thought was very revealing. Careening across southeast New Hampshire, I noticed the polling places were thick with Clinton aides, many advertising her endorsement by a plumbers or pipefitters union. So here he is careening across the state and seeing the signs for the unions. Does he ever stop to actually talk to any union person or any worker? No. Um, Sometimes people talk to voters when they go to rallies. And here was a piece that got some attention by Ryan Lizza, who's a very good reporter for The New Yorker. And this was a very entertaining look. He went to four Trump rallies. (laughs) But he... He, and he says, I made a point, they try to keep you from talking to voters at these rallies, but he lined up three hours in advance at one rally in Mississippi so he could talk to people. And I mean, I, I actually um, circle the parts that are, are the voters that he talked to. There are three voters he talked to. There, you have no sense of really who these people are beyond their age, and, and sometimes you don't even get a, an occupation or anything. And so over and over, I feel uh, that the press is in this bubble. This is not, a, this is not an original observation. But I think it's become more striking. Uh, the press, with each election almost, is more and more in the dark. And I think it's because they rely so much on other members of the elite. But the other members of the elite are equally you know, in the dark. Here's a story from the Times. The sudden popularity of Mr. Trump, who defies Republican orthodoxy on issue after issue, shows how deeply the party's elite misjudged the faithfulness of rank-and-file Republicans to conservatism, as defined in Washington think tanks and by the party's electoral leader. Well, he could add the press to that, too, you know, that they've also been left behind. So just very briefly, there are three big areas that I think if, if journalists got out more into the field, and I'm talking about deep reporting, like 
having somebody stationed in Iowa for months leading up to the caucuses there, or in New Hampshire, or in Nevada. So three issues. One, immigration. We here in New York, you know, immigration, we are all basically, I don't know, we're used to immigrants. A lot of us have forefathers and foremothers from other countries. What is it about immigration that has become such a huge issue with these Trump supporters? I actually saw a recent thing that showed that, in fact, Texas, Arizona, the rate of immigrants of the, the proportion of the overall population is much higher than here. So that's obviously a factor. But, but what is it? Is it economic? Is it the taking of jobs, the lowering of wages? I mean, Joe could talk about what the data shows on that. But is it that or is it cultural? Is it racial? I mean, I would like to see some really good, deep reporting on why people are so impassioned on immigration. I just don't know the answer to that. Second, trade. Um, I went to Ohio for a week to talk to voters before the 2008 election. It was a fantastic experience. And I was struck by how much people brought up NAFTA in northwestern Ohio. And it was fascinating. I mean, because here in New York, you really don't have as much sense of how that has impacted people. And I also don't know, uh, Patty and I have had a conversation, and they're all, it's very complicated because um, you, know, you don't know what the effects of trade are versus immigration and so on. But again, I think somebody who hung out in Ohio for a while or whatnot could really get much more deeply into the reality of this. Is it a perception or is it a reality that trade has so impacted people? And it's a big factor now with the Pacific Trade Agreement. Finally, evangelical America, obviously a critical part of American political life. It's covered like a foreign country. It's like people going to Thailand or Tunisia and covering. I've been working on a book about religion, so I've actually, uh, even though it's set in Europe 500 years ago, uh, I've been paying a lot of attention to the origins of evangelicalism. And I just, I, I'm flabbergasted by, by the lack of understanding. I was at dinner once with a New York Times uh, editor who, this was in, in, this is about five years ago, and she was saying how great it was to have people with military experience like C.J. Shivers who could cover wars because they know so much about it. And she wanted to hire more. I said, why don't you hire an evangelical who could go out and sort of, like, do the same type of reporting on that sector? And I just think it would be extremely revealing if we had more deep reporting. Can I ask Michael a question? Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, uh, having uh, uh, being part of a, a quantitative profession, even though I don't use numbers myself, uh, <laughs> the 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 uh, attack against polling, I sort of uh, reacted to a little bit. Um, and uh, uh, the question is: Is it the superficiality of the polling, or the polling ex uh, uh, the polling itself? What I have in mind, I mean, at the Roosevelt we've been, uh, Institute, we've been doing a lot of polling, and we haven't, but we've, Stan Greenberg has been doing uh, polling for us. And uh, on particularly on uh, what we call deep polling, you know, what we call deep polling, where, where you have long interviews and, and vignettes and trying to understand sort of the, the, in, in, a, in a more precise way, what are the issues that people are concerned with? And the point is uh, to do it quantitatively, you know, so a random sample of 10 or 15, we're, as social scientists, nervous about. And one feels a little bit better if you have a sample of a thousand, and and you've done it in a in a methodologically, uh, you know, at least we would tell our students this, uh, do it in a methodologically rigorous way. And um, and so, for instance, one of the things that came out of that polling was the depth of concern about uh, trade. It is a really big issue, and it wasn't clear even with the polling why it was so strong. And um, uh, the thing is, they didn't know fully why they should have been so much against it. I try to explain. I, I would. I, I hope in the you know in the election to be trying to explain to them, 
But like the objection to ISDS, they don't really understand, but they do get that there's something about trade and it really fire, it is firing them up. So your, your observation about that is absolutely right and shows uh, in, in some of the polling that, that was done for the Roosevelt Institute. Let me just say I'm not opposed to polls. I mean, in fact, they've been very accurate in a lot of ways in predicting what's going on. But it's the why. It's sort of like no, the polls right are a good starting point, but you want to, they are capturing a snapshot of where the population is. But to understand why Trump is polling these numbers or why particular demographic groups go for a particular candidate and what is driving that, because, I mean, that's what I think our journalists should be telling us more in, instead of constantly being surprised along with all the other elites. Um, so uh, let me just respond to a few things that um, have come up here. So, um, you know, obviously the media, there's huge variation. I, you know, I feel fortunate to work for an organization like the Times um, and recognizing that uh, there's a lot of difference in coverage and how it is. And I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to be sounding like I'm defending uh, being in this position because let me start off by saying I actually hate most of the political coverage across the board. Um, uh, a lot of the, um, the kind of horse race aspect of it, I think, is a gigantic waste, and I'm not that interested in it. Um, and so I, I have a lot of critiques of my own on that. But uh, let me say a few things, which is one, I just, in terms of news organizations like The Times, and, you know, let's, let's talk about assuming who's doing the best reporting. I just, it's just absolutely not true that they aren't doing in-depth on the ground. In fact, we had a reporter in Iowa for a year, Trip Gabriel. Um, which right. I would argue, I right, but I mean, in terms of you're talking about in-depth reporting, he actually lived there for a year, and we had a discussion the other day, I know, we, ha we had a discussion the other day, Joe, whether, Joe is from Indiana, was that, was that a good use of resources, I, I'm not sure that actually was, um, putting somebody there for a year in advance, um, and uh, there's absolutely an obsession with the polls and counting, it's across the board in data, it's not only in political reporting, it's in every kind of reporting now, it's in journalism as well, uh, you know, how many people read your story, where are they reading it, how is it getting shared, so all of those things, I, I think it's like any good reporter, you use whatever information is out there and you balance it. Is a poll, if you are doing a good poll and talking to a thousand people, less informative than if you go out on a day and you interview eight people at a rally? What is more representative? What is giving you a big well, I'm not sure. saying eight people at a rally. No, I, I, so my point, so my point, I, I, my point is just as a reporter, you try and use all the information that's available. You use polls, then, you know, you go and you do interviews, and yes, the, absolutely, journalists, we're going to be talking to elites more, if anything, party elites, which is part of that that divide between the rank and file. Um, you know, whether it's it's conservative Republicans and the party elites, but um, I, I actually think there is a lot of excellent reporting being done and in-depth reporting being done talking to people um, on the ground. I also think that, you know, part of the problem is even in this reporting now when we're looking at the primary results or the caucus results and, you know, percentages obviously are what gets reported, but if you actually also look at the absolute numbers, who are the, 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 the actual numbers of voters, it's very tiny. The people participating in a lot of these caucuses or primaries is not representative of the electorate as a large. I mean, this is not just true of this presidential election. It's true of every presidential election. But um, so in a way, even those primary results, I think, are misleading in terms of where the country is and, and who's supporting who. Um, and, you know, the yes, could the media do a better job? But I also think that, 
you know, there, there is a lot of, there is a lot of in-depth and good reporting going on out there. Yeah. Uh, one of the strands that I, I think I, I miss, uh, quite apart from you know, this, where, where, where is the American uh, people and what's motivated them, are, is at another level is sort of the intellectual movements uh, that are going on. And uh, for instance, um, on the Democratic side, uh, to me, what I find quite interesting is uh, while there's a you know you sort of the the slight different the, the the fighting between Hillary and and uh, Sanders on one issue or another very you know small differences, but asking what are the common elements of what is a broad progressive agenda, and I, I haven't seen that kind of, of of analysis of what is the you might say the 2015 2016 progressive agenda because there was actually a lot more in common. And it, it really is defining a, a, a real strand of where the country is going. The second question I, I sort of sort of interested go, that I've you know I, I've speculated about uh, is what happened to the right wing of the Democratic Party? Uh, what some of people call the Rubenites. Is it just in hiding? Has it disappeared? Uh, is it dead? Or are we going to see the revenge of the Rubenites and 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 uh, at any moment? So so to me. I, you know, uh, clearly some of the actors are still there. So the question is, what's going on? On the Republican side, there's been a little bit more of of uh, of this uh, in the sense that um, you know, Trump is a very interesting uh, from a from a political point of view. What is the what is is there an intellectual coherent agenda, or what can you make of the agenda? I mean, there must be. Every brain has to have some coherence, <laughs> and, and if you try to figure out the coherence of it, what would it be? Uh, with with, and I, I think there are, you know, uh, you, you mentioned Huey Long, and you know, uh, that may be the the sense of what what it is. Um, uh, but uh, you look at the three candidates in the Repu uh, now, you know, the three leading candidates in the Republican Party, they're very different positions. So that really asks again the question that has been asked frequently about what is the coalition that is the Republican Party? What happened to the business establishment? Uh, they didn't do very well in the primaries, uh, and everybody, you know, the money didn't buy the, the outcome. Um, will there be a new coalition that uh, uh, formed uh, before uh, the convention, after the convention? So I, th I think these are some of the, to me, some of the more, you know, not. Uh, higher level issues about where the direction of our country is going. You know, uh, you, you brought up a point which I've been thinking about a lot, which is this, and I, it also has to do with this divide between kind of the reporting by on elites um, and what's going on in the rank and file. And the question is, does there have to be intellectual coherence? And I, and, and I would say one of the things that, and I, I don't cover politics, but um, any time that I have traveled, you know, throughout the country and done interviews, no matter what the subject is, not necessarily the economy, but in, in my years, I've always been surprised at the um, mix of views that people have, that they don't at all fit the kind of conservative profile or liberal profile that we always talk about and use as a shorthand, that politicians talk about. Um, not to, to say that there aren't people who follow you know, who are kind of dyed-in-the-wool conservatives or dyed-in-the-wool liberals. But most people that I've spoken to, whether it's a mishmash on social issues, conservative issues, values, immigration, it doesn't line up. And in that sense, ironically enough, I actually think Donald Trump reflects that much more 
um, th that kind of inconsistency that most voters have. Um, and it even goes to the point of, you know, we talk about your own self-interest. I mean, I really remember this article we had last year, and it was interviewing people who were benefiting from Obamacare, who did not have health care before, but were so against it, you know. <laughs> um, and so, in a way, I think this kind of, uh, you know, and you see it particularly on the on among the Republican candidates now, among Ted Cruz, who's talking about this kind of conservative purity. Um, but I don't think that actually reflects the way that voters feel if you actually ask them on different issues. And that's why I do think, you know, this kind of in-depth, um, whether it's reporting or even in-depth polling, that really seeks to pull out why people have the views that they do in Scratch Below is so interesting. If you'd like to listen to the full panel discussion, you can find a link to the video on our website, thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. On there, you'll also find a discussion that was recently held at the Columbia School of Nursing about how this year's election could also affect health policy. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu.